Welcome to Charting the Course, a podcast from Full Sail Capital. We're a registered investment advisory firm committed to helping clients grow and manage generational wealth. We do this by focusing on integrity, competency, and transparency each and every day. No matter where you find yourself on the investing journey, our hope is that these conversations, stories, and interviews can empower and equip all investors with fresh insight and perspective on the capital markets. Thank you so much for joining us, and I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Well, we're back this week with another Squared Away episode, where we look back and reflect on the first quarter of 2023. I'm joined by Chief Investment Officer Zach Reynolds, along with Austin Burks, one of our more recent hires and one of our two investment analysts here at Full Sail Capital. After you listen, be sure to check out those links in the show notes. We mentioned it all during our conversation, but we highlighted a few helpful and, and really interesting resources, uh, including Morgan Housel's new podcast. So we've created a link to his landing page. Be sure and go check those out. And as always, let me know if you have any questions. But here's my conversation with Zach and Austin. I hope you enjoy. Zach, Austin, appreciate the time today, fellas. Thank you for joining happy, me. Happy to be here. Yeah. Austin, welcome to the podcast. Glad You're to be no here. longer a rookie. You were on the year-end podcast. so <laughs> Second time. We, we appreciate you coming down here. So we're going to look back over the first quarter of 2023. It's been a much better quarter than the past uh, four quarters that we dealt with in the previous year. But let's start. Let's look at stock bonds. We'll get to the Fed, and then we're going to hit some more just the way we manage money, investing, and, and we're going to finish up with some quick hits on just what's going on just really in the investing world and kind of what's been running the headlines. But let's let's go back. Let's start it. The first quarter returns, numbers, and everything, what that looked like. So, Zach, I'll let you kind of lead it off here as uh, as you walk us through all this. Yeah, good quarter, as you said, Tyler. You know, when you look at stocks, kind of broadly positive across the board, whether you're talking about U.S., large cap, mid cap, small cap, international. I think when you look beneath the headline numbers, there's some interesting things, though, that jump out. Yeah, what would you, yeah, what kind of jumped out to you, though? So, one thing that really jumped out to me, and you're seeing more people talk about this, is S&P was up 7.5%. 88% of that return came from seven stocks. And so it, it was not a broad-based rally. If you look at the average stock in the S&P, it didn't Specific perform. sector on those stocks? Yeah. So in a very big reversal from 2022, okay. the tech sector okay. is really outperformed in 2023. And this is surprising for a few reasons. Okay. You know, last year you heard a lot about how tech stocks are long duration. What people mean by that is long duration stocks get most of their earnings well out into the future. Okay, so right. we all know from our finance class, right? If interest rates are low, then, you know, earnings out in the future can be valued higher today than if interest rates are high okay. because we can invest that money today, profits you earn today, if interest rates are higher, worth more. So right. last year it made sense that companies that earn more of their profits in the short run got an increase in value relative sure. to tech stocks. Okay. It's been surprising this year because interest rates have continued to go up, at least on the short end of the curve, but tech has really roared back. You've seen stocks like NVIDIA with the AI revolution, as I know we may talk a little bit about later, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. up 88% at least uh, as, as we're talking here. Right. So obviously I have a bias toward a particular way of investing, but it certainly says to me that it's very, very difficult to time these things. You would have had to have really completely switched the way you invest as the calendar turned to really uh, take advantage of some, some of these changes. And also one thing you may want to talk about, because you put together a great sector slide for our market update, kind of some of the differences from 2022 to 2023. So kind of looking at some of the sector shifts that we saw when we're comparing 2022 to what we've kind of seen year to date, we've seen technology as well as communication services and consumer discretionary. And they've kind of led so far year to date. They've been up 
between 16 to 22 percent, um, which has been kind of what you were saying, a big reversal with all, all three of them being down over 20 percent last year. Um, you've seen energy, which was by and far the leading sector um, in 2022. So far, year to date, it's down roughly 5 percent. Um, so it's been a big swing and a big change between uh, the kind of the makeup of what is driving the market performance so far uh, in Q1. Well, and you would have had to, to both your points, you would have had to go, okay, we're going to sell out of energy <laughs> on December 31st, and then we're going to buy NVIDIA on right. January 1st. <laughs> like, it, it's just, it just shows you the the incredible difficulty it is to try and not only time, but try to pick the right, not even the sector, the right stock. Right. Anyway, yeah, the, the chart you put together was, was fascinating, but you really have seen that reversal in, in leadership, which has been really interesting. So that's on the stock side. Any other kind of high points there with equities? No, I think uh, maybe talk about bonds a little bit as well. Yeah. So as we've talked about in this podcast yeah. in the past, stocks last year had a poor year. It wasn't even the worst year of my career, though. What was really unusual last year was the bond performance. Yeah, yeah you, had a, you had an equity cycle that's very par for the course, right. but it was paired with a bond downturn that was unprecedented. We, really, We really haven't seen. That's in, right. In and, and, years. The, and the net effect of that is, again, we've talked about in the yeah, past, but yeah. any sort of portfolio you could construct last year had a negative return, whether you were very conservative, all in bonds or, or all in stocks. The good news this year is that bond returns are positive. If you look at the Bloomberg Barclays aggregate up about 3%, which, you know, is, is a pretty decent return. Okay. Um, a lot of volatility within the, the quarter though. And Big reason there, as everyone knows, second week of March, you had a couple bank failures uh, in Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. You had Credit Suisse that was kind of forced into a merger with UBS. And that really moved the interest rate market dramatically. You sure. saw a really big move in the two-year U.S. Treasury uh, yield, for example, from above 5% down below 4%. That's a massive move in a market as big and liquid as U.S. Treasury. So as everyone knows, if, if interest rates decline, bond prices go up. So that decline within the quarter helped uh, bond prices as well. And, you know, we've seen positive returns from corporate bonds, uh, from yeah. munis, from kind of across the bonds spectrum. So, you know, in contrast to 2022, wherever you invested this in the first quarter of 2023, you probably had a, a positive, positive experience. number, sure. It was interesting to kind of watch how... Immediately after the bank failure with Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank and several of the others, that the market treated this very as much as a um, disinflationary event. Um, kind of like as you were saying, Zach, with the drop in treasury yields from 5 to 3.8%. It's been interesting to kind of watch now kind of some of the tightening within the credit space and how that banks are being a lot more selective with the credit that they're giving out which ultimately kind of leads to less capital deployment, less projects moving forward, which helps to kind of cool off some of these, this high sticky inflation that we've been seeing. So that's kind of what it was interesting to see what Jerome Powell and the Fed were going to do in their last meeting and if they were going to raise rates or if they were going to pause. They ultimately raised by 25 basis points, but it was interesting to kind of see the market react and kind of jumped right away and kind of experience some of that volatility that we're kind of talking about. And we know now, uh, Wall Street Journal had a great article recently about kind of the deliberations within the Fed. They were pretty close to holding rates steady. 
And it was like the day of, the day before, looking at market reaction to what was going on with Credit Suisse and UBS, and then the regional banks generally, when they decide, okay, we think the economy is strong enough to withstand another quarter point hike right. for Fed funds. So, you know, from for me, what the Fed does from here is going to have a lot of impact on asset prices and kind of returns for 2023. Another thing is we've talked about, Tyler, that just makes timing markets or jumping in and out so difficult because at the end of the day, you've got a dozen or, or fewer people on the Federal Reserve Board who are going to decide where interest rates go and therefore what stock and bond prices do. They, they are large. still people. It's not AI on there yet. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Kind of thinking about the banking industry still, I, I think, Austin, you're absolutely right that the common saying or, or something that you've heard in the past about the Fed is when you have a rate increase cycle, you you hike until you break something. And, you know, the fact that something kind of broke this quarter, I think shows that the Fed had an impact. And maybe with some of the reaction from banks, they may not have to tighten as much from an interest rate perspective sure. because they're going to be being more conservative. They're not going to make as many loans. You know, in hindsight, I think you've got to give the Fed a little credit for what they ultimately did with Silicon Valley Bank and Signature yeah. Bank and guaranteeing those uninsured deposits. I think if they hadn't done that, it could have been significantly worse. Uh, you could have seen a run the on run. some other banks. Sure, the run we could have had. Yeah. Along those lines with the Fed and then now the FDIC kind of thrown into the spotlight, and we've really seen this kind of toward the end of last year and the beginning of the year, at least the increasing appetite for money market funds. And that goes back to just banks not quite keeping up with the rise in rates. And there's a lot of reasons. I think we even dove into that on the first, the, the first squared away we did this year. What's that conversation been like, with, at least within the investment team, as far as how we're handling money market funds? And again, I think it's an allocation conversation, but when does money market funds, when do those make sense? When do some treasuries make sense? We've had a lot of conversations with clients around those. And I thought, I just think it's an interesting topic to hit on. So two perspectives I have. One is at the micro level, at the individual level. And my job when I come in and a client sends us a million dollars is how can I create the highest return for this million dollars yep. with the least amount of risk? Right. And so, you know, money markets play a part there. Many people in the past have held excess cash at banks. Yep. And when rates were zero, it really didn't matter if you had it at the bank or in a money market fund that might give you 10 basis points right. or whatever it is. We're in a very different world now where money market funds are four and a half percent or so. Yeah. And many banks were still below 1%, some up 2%, maybe three, but almost none of them were paying what money markets could pay. Right. So that just creates an opportunity as an mm -hmm. individual to increase the amount of return or yield you're, you're getting get. from your and from at least your At least a tip to get closer to that inflation figure. That's exactly right. And which is what you've seen with when you look at the banking space, whether it be small regional banks or even the big four banks, there's yep. been a, a net outflow of deposits from the bank um, and from checking accounts and savings accounts into some of these money market funds. And and it goes to also kind of highlight the importance of kind of regional banks and, and the importance that they have within the community um, and, and where you're really seeing a lot of banks be worried about this net outflow of deposits because the local regional banks are what give loans to real estate as well as just private commercial development in the area. That and so that local economy is, yep. is starting to kind of feel those, those effects I mean, of. Yeah. So that's the, that's the macro level, right? right? You've got micro level, it might be great for the individual macro level, maybe not so good for the economy if we see this de deposit flight from these small and regional banks. So I think again, going back to the actions that the fed took and regulators took, 
we need confidence in those banks and you need people to feel like, hey, if they put money in there, they're going to be okay. I think, you know, you saw certainly at Silicon Valley Bank, some herd behavior where you have these VC firms who, you know, Silicon Valley Bank was good to them. They did a, made a lot of loans that, you know, a conservative Oklahoma bank may, may not make, but they ended up having all these very low yielding uninsured deposits. And it was very easy for those companies to transfer that money out of that bank. And because they had such a long duration bond portfolio, they just had a mismatch. And such there. a high concentration of deposits with a small number of depositors who right. were uninsured um, versus kind of that more diversified effect you see in, in regional banks. Yeah. And so, you know, I think it's probably too soon to sound the all clear, but I think I'm a buyer of the idea that it was idiosyncratic risk related to these banks that failed rather than a systemic problem. I was going to ask from a high level, uh, just for our, for our listeners perspective, is this a macro concern or is this a few banks that just got a little, maybe not a little, but too far over their skis, so to speak? And you kind of answered it. But yeah, I, I, th I think it's the latter. I mean, we're not saying it's not a systematic issue right now. Sure. But and Banks were put, and not just banks, companies like Schwab, which really was in the news a lot in March too, but they were put in the spotlight because they were in the same difficult spot that we were as they were trying to figure out how to allocate assets. And they could get a little bit more yield for buying a 30-year bond and rates had been low for a decade. So it didn't seem crazy at the time to stretch a little bit and try to get that additional so yield. So as the rates went up, it is kind of one of the root causes of this issue. Exactly. Well, and, and, and to highlight, you had a, a rising, you had a positive sloped uh, yield curve, correct. meaning you would get more yield for a longer term bond, whereas nowadays that is flipped and you actually get more yield for the shorter term sure. bonds. But it's not a problem, I should say. If you hold those bonds to maturity, you get all your money back. But the problem is if you're forced to sell those bonds because is, your deposits are fleeing, then you then, recognize that yeah. loss and it creates a problem. And okay. that's what happened with Silicon Valley Bank. Okay, And, and you're probably going to see more regulation as well around that in the way um, there was some accounting kind of tricks that were used to specifically like mark certain securities for that's sale right. versus held to maturity. And you're probably going to see more regulation um, from or surrounding that. Agreed. Let's wrap up some of the market discussion, at least the market related and kind of return discussion with a little bit on the Fed, what you and the team are hearing from really the next three quarters. What's the futures market saying? What is the market pricing in? Yep. What's the data showing us today? Yeah, there's a lot of, if you look at kind of Wall Street strategists, there's a lot of people who disagree about what the Fed will do going forward. I think I read today, I can't recall the bank, but one of them is still projecting three hikes throughout the rest of the year. Hmm. The thing I look at the most, it's not, it doesn't have a perfect track record, but it is real people wagering real money about what the future is going to be, which I always put a high premium on, yeah. is Fed Funds Futures is pricing in a little bit better than a 50% chance as we record this today that the Fed increases by a quarter point in May. Okay. And then it's showing that the Fed is likely to hold rates steady for okay. a couple of meetings and then start cutting rates by the end of the year. And this is, We've talked about this in the past too. This is no change uh, this quarter. What the Fed is telling you they're going to do in terms of their dot plot expectations of where rates go and what the market, the bond market is telling you they're going to do yeah. are very different things. The Fed okay. is not talking about cutting rates, but the market doesn't believe that. <laughs> they think it will cut rates. Okay. And so as we kind of read into the implications there, that implies that the market likely thinks we're going to have a recession or an economic slowdown that is significant enough that the Fed will want to cut rates. Okay. You know, my view, we've had a good start 
in, in, for stocks this year. Yeah. Stocks don't seem to be pricing in a much of a recession, if at all. Okay. Whereas the bond market is, and historically the bond so market's I been gives. the smarter money. Yeah. But you you know how confident are we sure. that they're going to be right this time? Austin, any thoughts on that? Well, I mean, and, and to highlight kind of what you were saying, even though the stock performance so far this year has been great, it's been headlined by. A, a small number of names. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so how hard is it to trust that? I think the other thing that's interesting to look at is you've kind of seen more, more and more data coming out that households have exhausted the savings that they've had or that they built up as a result of kind of some of the, the money that was deployed during COVID. And then we're kind of now in, a, in an environment that there's going to be less credit availability. So it's going to be harder for, for firms that are looking to kind of borrow more or do a little bit more of debt borrowing, that they're not going to be able to do that. And then we've also seen some data on like credit card utilization within private households is at an all-time high. It's like 1.2 trillion US dollars, which is the highest it's been since the year 2000. And so I think some of these factors are going to come to play, which may force the Fed to cut rates sooner if they start to see the data. But you've, you've also seen data within the jobs market kind of start to trend towards the positive or in terms of positive for the meaning Fed. that <laughs> yeah. yes, meaning that inflation is starting to kind of roll over, yep. starting to maybe cool off a little bit, and hopefully signal that they may not need to um, continue to hike with the speed that they've done so far. Yeah, I agree. I, I think the economic data is generally positive, both in the sense that the economy is still showing some strength, probably more strength than a lot of people would have guessed six sure, months ago. Right. But to your point, Austin, we are seeing inflation still too high, but it's coming down. Unemployment. unemployment is going up a little bit, which the yeah. Fed wants. But this last jobs number that we got for March, you saw the uh, participation rate increase, which is something I've been talking about for 15 years. It's been really disappointing to see the number of people who are want to work go down. Go down. We're finally starting to see that number come up. Which I think that's a then, very, yeah. very positive thing for the economy. Absolutely. And, and it, it, it may be related, I think, to Austin's point on people exhausting their savings you know, I think a lot of people during COVID upgrade their lifestyle a little bit because they had, you know, a little extra money. And my COVID stimmy's all gone. <laughs> yeah, your stimmies are gone. So maybe I'll go get a job if I want to keep, uh, you know, all my streaming services and, and everything else. So I, I think that's a good thing. Okay. Let's move into a section of the market updates act that you guys put together that I thought was extremely uh, informative and impactful. And we've really, we've kind of hit on it, but I think we're going to put a name to it, which is the way we manage money is, is we take an indexing approach. You saw the destruction that single stock exposure can have during this first quarter. So we're not saying it's the only way to manage money, but let's highlight, here's why we think this is a very attractive path forward, if you will, in the investing world. Yeah. So I really enjoyed writing this piece, took a lot of time, kind of looked back at the history of the S&P 500, came up with some cool things. This is for our quarterly market update. If anyone's listening out there and wants a, a copy of this section, we certainly can provide that. Just email us. Yeah. But yeah, I, I think this quarter is a great quarter to talk about why indexing works, why it works so well, why it's so hard for active managers or stock pickers to actually outperform the market. And really the idea for this creative destruction piece that I put together came from, we've ha I've heard a couple of comments when we describe how we invest money, so people saying, oh, you guys are just passive then. Just passive investors. Right? And so passive is a term that's used for indexing because it doesn't require you to make a lot of 
buys or sells, right? You, if you buy the S&P 500 fund, you're getting exposure to 500 companies that have what, 12 trillion, I think it is the market cap of the S&P 500 uh, in one single fund that costs you less than $1 per year per thousand dollars invested. So it's a simple, low cost way to get exposure, exposure to a whole lot of stocks. But if you look back, so S&P 500, as we know it today, started in 1957. And at the time, I've, I, love I this found stat. all of this so interesting. This is fascinating. So 425 industrial companies, 25 railroads. I bet you couldn't name five railroads today. Aren't they all like the same now? Yeah, they, like, there's been a lot of northern Santa Fe. I can name the one. Yeah. I, I can name the railroad I run into every day every when day I'm trying to come to work. Yeah. Very different back then. And then you had 50 utility companies. So what does that makeup of sectors tell you about the U.S. economy in the 1950s? It was very industrial. Industrial. It was about focus. moving things around, yep. producing electricity to create things. Expanding and, the and economy. Building things, right? Yep. This is interesting too. So the total market cap in 1957 was 173 billion. So I put that in, you know, we inflation adjust that. That's about 1.9 trillion okay. in today's dollars. Does anyone know what the market cap of Apple is today? It's north it's of two. Close to $3 trillion. Wow. So you've got one stock that, that makes up it's just one stock in the S&P 500 is worth more in, in inflation-adjusted terms than the entire S&P in 1957, which just shows you how much the economy has grown over and, that time. And look at what sector that stock is exactly. that we're talking about. Yep. None of the... None of the Technology, which was not a sector in 1957. Technology, yeah. What all this tells me is it's not passive to invest in the S&P 500. You have a quarterly rebalancing process where... Companies like we had two companies leave the index this quarter, Austin, which were Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. Right. And so those companies failed. This is the gain to the creative destruction part of the piece. That happens. In fact, we expect most companies over time to go away. To go away. They will not exist. Right. And this is where I think active management has gotten harder and harder over time. You go back to when Warren Buffett was getting started with Berkshire Hathaway the average age of a company in 1957 that was in the original S&P 500 was 61 years old. That has gone down by two thirds. Wow. Since then, if you look at more recent numbers of 2021, okay. 16 years. Silicon Valley Bank, I've got it in the piece. When was it added? Uh, 2018 or so. I think, it, so So you had a five year time that it was in the S&P 500. Yeah, 18. Yeah. McKinsey does study that they think most companies that are in the S&P 500 today will probably not be in the S&P 500 by the end of the decade. So you better be prepared to be very active, in my view, if you're going to play that right. stock picking game. Or, and I used uh, Kodak as, as a great example. Mm -hmm. Kodak, and I didn't know this until doing this research, it I was the either. third largest company in the S&P 500 at one point. In 1974. It was a very important company yeah. for the U.S. economy. And of course, it's well, it went through bankruptcy. It still exists in a very different form today, but all the way down to zero or, yeah, well, it did. You got wiped out if you owned Kodak you did, right. and it went bankrupt and then, and then it's reformed. But what I think is so powerful about indexing though, you saw companies like Kodak, companies like Blockbuster, not able to evolve with the times. Who came up to defeat them, right? Apple, you've got digital photography with iPhones that pretty much got rid of Kodak and other film related companies. Netflix, just straight up put Blockbuster out of business, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think it was what Blockbuster lost 75% of its profits within two-year period. Yep. And that's right and when happened, Netflix was starting. It happened so fast. And, you know, 
if you own the index and Kodak's in there and Blockbuster's in there, the weights of those companies are getting rebalanced each quarter. So yeah. they're coming down as they're losing market share. But crucially, you've got companies like Netflix and Apple that you're also invested in. That begin so to grow. That begin to grow. And you get, you start and you just watch those grow over time. And the creation of value from Apple and Netflix more than overcome the losses that you have from these companies that get creatively destroyed. So you get to participate in their rise as they continue to grow and expand and take over other companies that aren't. Exactly right. And what's hard, you know, if you compare an indexing approach to someone who's, let's say, an active mutual fund manager that may be limited to 5% for a particular company's holding. Well, Apple and Microsoft are larger than that now. So there there are structural things that may prevent an active manager from, from even matching an index's performance. But most importantly, in my view, it's as we talked about this quarter, it's so hard to predict when the market's going to recognize that change in value. And if you don't own those stocks, and I've lived this as a person who used to pick stocks, right. who didn't own Amazon at the time because it looked expensive. If You're, you if you don't own those stocks, you are going to underperform. Yeah, it's right. just math. Yeah, right. Well, and I we have another chart that you use, but GE is a great example. Nineteen fifty seven, GE was the second largest holding by I'm assuming market cap is what we're looking at here. It was also the second largest holding in March two thousand. Today, it is not in the top ten. That's right. Yep. And, and it's a great example because I've, I've actually, I think I've told this on this podcast before, but I had a client at a previous firm that was adamant he was going to hold his GE stock and it was an emotional thing. And that's when we get into the psychology of it all. And, but I could not get across to him basically this concept we're talking about. And uh, again, I, I think about that guy quite often. For sure. I mean, and, and we've talked about so many of those behavioral biases that yeah. come up when you feel like you really know something well, and therefore <laughs> you have control. Of course, it's a multi-billion dollar company. Well, and we, we've, have talked, no effective we've, we've talked about on here with our, we've got some energy and tech companies right here in Oklahoma City that give stock options and give grants. And we've had to have those conversations with clients of, you know, do you hold on to them? Anyway, so I thought this was fascinating. Okay, so let's go to Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, because I think these questions have come up a lot. And I know you, your team has fielded a lot of these questions from our own advisors here when we're talking to clients. Did we own or does, you know, what was our impact of those two positions compared to if you just owned them outright? Sure. So we had no direct exposure to Signature or Silicon Valley Bank. They were components of the S&P 500. They were components within the S&P 500 of the financial sector. So fortunately, they were very, very small. Right. So the, the impact to the ETF itself was quite small. The impact felt more broadly, though, certainly regional banks all sold off significantly. And if, even if you look today, as, as Austin and I do, when we're you know looking at our screens every day, regional banks sold off and have not come back. So there's been kind of a lasting impact from Signature and Silicon Valley Bank in investors' minds, at least how they're valuing those companies. Right. And I think there's probably some, that's probably correct. In other words, what Austin was saying earlier about those companies being more reluctant to make loans, perhaps having to pay more on their deposits to keep people at the bank versus going to one of the money center banks, all of those things hurt profitability. And so I think having those stocks trade down, perfectly reasonable. Here's the thing to bring it back to indexing yeah. though. Regional banks will be a smaller component of the S&P 500 or of the financial sector because of those changes. And we've had some other changes too. Payment processors got moved from technology to financials. So okay. companies like MasterCard and Visa are now part of the financial sector. So right. 
So they will have more of an impact. Again, it's, it, you know, we call it passive, but it is very dynamic what's happening Absolutely. within the index funds. Yeah. And, and as it relates to diversification, I know we were looking at a, a fund that someone was potentially wanting to bring over and they picked 30 stocks and Silicon Valley Bank was one of the 30 stocks that they pick. And so when you have something like that, it is such a huge component of that fund and you're going to take such a larger hit when you're not diversified. And I think one of the kind of my favorite quotes as it relates to diversification and kind of there's within finance, there's a longstanding mantra. There's no such thing as a free lunch. Um, and we're kind of starting to see a lot of the effects of the free lunch that we were given by the Fed with the 13 trillion money print as a result of COVID. Harry Markowitz, who's kind of one of the founders of modern portfolio theory, he won the Nobel Prize. Um, his quote on diversification is, it is the only free lunch in investing. And it's the only really tried and true method to be able to essentially achieve higher returns for lower amounts of risk. Um, because when you're investing money or you're managing portfolios, you have this trade-off of risk and return. Um, and diversification kind of allows you to target higher expected returns for less risk. And so this is another key example of why that is so important. And that's what you do when you're tracking an index or kind of trying to diversify in that way. It's a crucial point, Austin, that we talk about efficient frontiers and not to get too jargony on, on the podcast, but the idea is just what you said, is you take more risk, you want to be compensated with more return. Right. And if you have a diversified portfolio, you can expect over time, history tells us that will be true. If you're taking what we call idiosyncratic or non-systemic risk, though, you are not going to sit on that efficient frontier. You are taking more risk than is necessary to achieve that level of return. So right. it's a really important concept and it really is one of the backbones on which we build our portfolios. As we wrap up here, I thought we were talking off air and I, th I thought it was a good idea. We'll, we'll, we'll spend a little time on just some kind of some quick hits. One of my tidbits is we've highlighted it in the past is Morgan Housel's podcast. His latest one is some, I believe something around the, the lines of play your game exactly what you're talking about. You play your game, meaning you allocate the way you need to be allocated for your goals and everything we've talked about today, as long as you're diversified and you're, it lines up with your goals, then you've got a pretty good chance of success. Any other thoughts on kind of Housel's podcast is new. We've got, I think seven or eight episodes. Now. I totally agree. Tyler. I could not recommend his podcast more. And I'm going to, I'll link it here in the show notes. He's, I just love the way he uses stories to kind of help people understand some of these really important principles. Yeah. Please go listen to it. Yeah. I mean, it's, I, I think it's well worth your time and, and he keeps it short. I think the player game one's only about 14 minutes, so it's yeah. not a big investment of your time, but I think it'll stick with you and Absolutely. help you kind of frame how, because every person is different too. Yeah. And I've certainly had to learn that over my career and Morgan Housel talks about that and his, exactly. he used to think yeah. there was one, one right, right way to manage money and that was it. You know, I, I think there's a really good way to, to manage money if you're thinking in time horizons of decades right. and that's the way we do it. That's the way we think about it. But if you're trying to YOLO your thousand bucks into 10,000 in six months, that's a different game. It's not a game I want to play, but if, if that's what you want to do, I understand if you go buy, you know, zero day options, which is a new thing that people are doing. <laughs> <laughs> I, anyway, I just thought that was something I, I thought I wanted to bring up. The other thing let's, let's hit on a little bit is, and I haven't even quite grasp this. I don't even think I'm going to try to grasp this, but all of this new AI, you got chat GPT, chat GPT. you've got Google's Bard, Bard AI. You were telling me about one that Stanford's creating. Like what's your take? What is the investment team's take or just, just your in, individual take on, on this AI phenomenon that's going on? Well, no, I think 
it's it is exciting to see and it kind of ties into what we're talking about creative destruction and how industries over time have changed you've seen a revolution within even pretty much every single decade for the past three four decades of a shift and kind of a revolution in the way that work is done whether it be from cell phones to then smartphones to kind of cloud-based internet services. And now you're starting to see AI really kind of integrate into a wide range of daily tasks. But even within finance, we're starting to see AI be integrated. Bloomberg, which is one of the market leaders in financial data and analysis, they've announced Bloomberg GPT, which is essentially ChatGPT but trained on their vast database of historical and financial data. And so what that means and kind of how that ties back to what we do here, but then also just in general, learning to be able to utilize some of these new tools that are coming out is going to be important to be able to better serve clients, to have better and more efficient analysis of whether it be portfolios, economic data, but you're, it's essentially going to be able to allow people to do their jobs in a better and faster way. And so it is exciting to be kind of part of a technology forward firm that emphasizes really kind of how can we do the things that we're doing, but how can we do it, whether it be better or accurate or faster, all of which flows back to the client experience of having yeah. a better value add from their ex- experience because we're more equipped to do our jobs. Sure. I agree with all that. I'm grateful to Austin and and I'm glad that we've hired kind of the next generation yeah. of, of leaders within our firm because yeah. Austin, I, you know, he we were somewhere the other day and talking about childhood events that were meaningful and, and <laughs> they weren't matching up. And finally <laughs> I was like, what, what, when were you born? Yeah. 1998. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, so we've had a different experience, but the, the great thing about that is, is Austin understands technology in a way that, that I don't frankly. And so he's taught me a lot about AI. I have found it utterly fascinating to kind of experiment with. I will say it's not perfect yet. I, I mean, right. you know, if you do it, if you interact with chat GPT enough, you will find some incorrect information, which yeah. I've kind of run across as I've asked it, you know, how much money do I need to retire? And it'll, it does a, an incredible job usually in giving yeah. you a response that sounds like something you or I would say to not a client. Um, but then, you know, you dig a little deeper and I, I had some you know, some, some false responses. So be a little bit careful now, but I think we all know it's going to get better and better. I said, while we were talking off air, I think we'll remember this quarter most of all for being when AI really came into the general consciousness of people and interact with it. And we don't know, right. right, What the end implications will be, but I think we can be pretty confident they're going to be significant. And you've seen a hundred million monthly users within the first two months, um, which is basically unheard of for even over, you look at Uber, which was 10 years for them to reach the same amount. Facebook was four years. Instagram was two years. You've seen a massive widespread adoption of a new technology. So it is pretty crazy to think about where we will be in one, three, five years with this technology, which yes, is not perfect today, but what does it look like uh, moving forward? Yeah, it's fascinating. Zach, your team has gotten younger with the addition of uh, <laughs> Very much Charlie so. <laughs> and Austin, but it's an incredible team that we have. And uh, you can tell just from this conversation, it's great for my seat and the rest of our advisors, uh, the relationship management side of it to, to be able to go and articulate basically what we're talking about to clients. Because I think at the end of the day, it takes some time, but once they can understand our process and why we do what we do, when events like this happen, you know, events like last year are tough because 
almost looks like we're because we're never going to get out of the market. I can go to cash. Right. I can go to because that's just not how we roll. It's not our approach. Well, and, the, you, and the data doesn't support that right. either. And then you have a quarter like we've had this year, and so it starts to make sense. Yep. And anyway, I appreciate it. Thank you guys so much. Anything else you missed out? Any other kind of quick hits, quick tidbits you wanted to add? No, I just I totally agree. I'll I'll reemphasize your point as as we went into the end of last year. The negativity out there uh, on Wall Street, almost everyone uh, predicting flat to negative markets. And who knows, maybe we'll get there. But anyone who listened to what they heard on CNBC in December probably underperformed horribly this quarter because there was so much negativity. And even within markets, you know, places like Europe, we've talked about this internally quite a bit. A year ago, people called Europe uninvestable. Well, last six months, Europe's up 20% versus S&P up five or six. Right. You know, it's just, you you really don't know. Yeah. Uh, markets will surprise you. And that's what makes, you know, our job very interesting. But don't listen to CNBC. <laughs> <laughs> Let Zach and Austin listen to CNBC. And, so you don't have to. Yeah, you don't have to. Fellas, I appreciate it. We'll, um, we'll do it again soon. Thank you for the time. And uh, as always, hope everyone has a great rest of the week. Thanks, Todd. Thanks for having us. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed today's conversation, don't forget to review and subscribe through your preferred podcast platform. Have a great week. All opinions expressed by the host and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Full Sail Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Full Sail may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast.